And I'm so, so very thankful to the Lord for this place and for your preacher and uh, for the privilege that I have to be able to call him my friend. And I'm so thankful for he, I'm so thankful for him and for Christy and for the blessing that they are and their entire family. We've had a great year, been an exciting year, been neat to see what the Lord's doing and across the country. And he's doing some great things. We started out, headed out to New Mexico and then California. We're in several places in California. My, what an amazing place California is. Boy, if you're looking for a place to serve God, California is wide open. And I would go there in a skinny minute if the Lord told me to go. What an opportunity there is. And I know sometimes the politics gets all clouded. But by the way, let me just pause and say, don't let the politics of this world or this country, and we love our country, but don't let the politics of this world cloud you from what you really are. You're a citizen of a, of a heavenly city, and we have a mission and a purpose, and we're ambassadors for the King of Kings, and, and that needs to be the thing that far and away outshines everything else that's going on with controversies and difficulties. Do not put your ear down to the TV and let all of that goes on through the news media be the be the thing that triggers every part of you. Don't, don't let it happen. Turn it off. In fact, I would encourage you to turn the whole thing off. Just turn the news off. There's never been one newscast that I've watched that made me more like Jesus. Not one. And so I want to encourage you just to turn the whole thing off and, and just say, Jesus, I'm a citizen of the heavenly city. Help me to be a representative of you in such a way that points people to that city. But we had wonderful meetings out in California. We've been out to Oregon, up to Minnesota. We've been in many, many places across this country. And the Lord allowed us in June to go 11 hours north of North Dakota. Yes, you heard that right. 11 hours north of North Dakota to a place called Thompson, Manitoba. In the summer, it's light from 4 in the morning till 1130 at night. And right now in the winter, it's light from uh, 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All the rest is darkness. And what a needy place that is. I'll tell you more about that tonight. But I just want to thank the Lord for his goodness and for allowing us to travel. This just finishes our 27th year in evangelism. And God's been so good, so good abundantly above all that we could ask or think. We're so thankful to him for his goodness. I want to encourage you to, there's a table in the back with some items that we have. I don't want to take a long time, but there are some things that the boys have made, some journals and some pens and key rings. And then there's a book back there called Legacy of the Mat. And it is written by a man named Jim Hayswinkle. And uh, he was a, a, he and his twin brother, his identical twin, uh, Dave Hayswinkle, they were, uh, they were Olympic wrestlers. And there's some amazing stories. They wrestled in two Olympics, 68 and 72, and five world games. And uh, they were raised in a town just next to where I grew up in Minnesota, Coon Rapids, Minnesota, is where I grew up. They grew up in Anoka, Minnesota. And they didn't wrestle until their junior year of high school because they were so little. They were, they're short and uh, they just they didn't wrestle. As a matter of fact, they, they played baseball and the whole season that they played baseball, uh, I think they were seventh grade or whatever, they never played one time, not one time, until the last game and it was bases loaded and the coach said, Dave, get up here. And he said, you step up to the plate and you squat down as low as you can and don't swing because he knew that it would just alter the strike zone. <laughs> and that got him on base uh, and one person home because they walked him. And he said, Jim, you get up here and do the same thing. So that's their sports experience. And 
<laughs> and then when they were juniors in high school, they found out that they could wrestle and they loved wrestling and they were good at it and just amazing. And they, they trusted Christ as their savior when they were young. We produced their track in testimony form, their testimony in track form. And they, they, uh, they, they went off and they became wrestlers. They wrestled for uh, St. Cloud State University in Minnesota. And uh, then they ended up uh, going into the military and they ended up coaching at West Point and uh, mightily used to the Lord. Jim was my brother's coach in college at Pillsbury Christian College, Pillsbury Baptist Bible College in Minnesota. And uh, Dave, he coached in Oklahoma Baptist College and they both ended up coaching down at Pensacola. But they were in the World Games going into Bulgaria and uh, they had heard that there was a need for Bibles in Bulgaria. So they, they, they both got uh, secured 20 Bibles each and they put them in their suitcases. They, they contacted uh, some people that had, had suffered and uh, uh, the Voice of the Martyrs, the man who had started the Voice of the Martyrs, contacted them. And they got some Bibles and they got them in there and they got to customs and uh, got to customs. And as they stood in line, the customs agent, the, the border guard, was just ransacking the world team, U.S. world team's luggage. I mean, just tearing it all up to pieces, either, either to find some contraband or to irritate the, world, uh, the U.S. world team. And they said, whoa, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and they said, Lord, we're just going to have to pray, commit this to you. This could be uh, prison. This could be we're banned from coming into Bulgaria, confiscation. Uh, there could be a lot of things that could happen. And so they just committed it to the Lord. And they, they got up and Jim opened his suitcase. And if you want to know what happens, you have to buy the book. But anyway, it's back there. And I want to encourage you to go and get it. It really is one chapter after another of soul winning stories. You want to use this. It's a great tool for winning people to Christ. It's a great tool to challenge you in winning people to Christ. It's the whole point of it. So let me encourage you to get it, make a great gift. But I want to challenge you along those lines. Mark chapter 2 is where our Bibles are open. Mark chapter 2 in the Word of God. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse number 1. Mark 2 and verse 1. The Bible says in Mark 2 and verse 1, And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. I want to preach to you on the subject this morning. Is Jesus in the house? Father, speak to our hearts. Change us through our exposure and our, our heart exposure to your word. Help us, Lord, to not leave content the way we came. And Lord, help us to come to your word with an open heart. Lord, like the Bereans searching to see whether these things were so, and like those in Thessalonica that were so, so discerning to know that this was the word of God and indeed the word of God and not the word of men. I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there's someone here that's not saved, that today they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and be born again. We'll thank you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, the number one question that you need to ask when you come to church is, is Jesus in the house? And what can I do to accommodate him, to open the door to him, to have a place for him to be in the house, in the house of God, collectively as we gather as a body? In my house, is Jesus in my house? Is he in my heart? Is Jesus in the house? That's the question. 
In the book of Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and following, the Bible says this, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This was when Moses dedicated the tabernacle. And if you will remember in Exodus chapter number 30, 38, he, he gathered together the people and said, everyone that has a willing heart and everyone that can bring, bring gold and, and bring silver and bring ram skins and, and bring badger skins and fine linen. And we're going to bring and build the supplies for the tabernacle. And the people with a willing heart came, men and women, and, and they brought with a heart that was ready to offer this to the Lord. In fact, it was an offering that had to stop. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a part of an offering that you had to stop. I have only once. But there was so much that came in here at the tabernacle, they had to say, we've got enough. It's too much. We don't need any more. Wouldn't that be something? If the, if the church folks took up an offering and halfway back, the ushers say, it, it, it's too much. Nobody else give. Wouldn't that be something you'd remember? That'd be something you'd write home about. That'd be something you'd enter down in your journal. They have to stop the offering halfway because there was such a willing heart from those that sat in the first half of the auditorium. Probably frustrated those in the last half of the auditorium. Why well, We wanted to give and we couldn't. They stopped before we could give. Probably wasn't a Baptist gathering. But anyway, here there was such a great gathering that they had to stop it and they came and dedicated the tabernacle. And when they came to dedicate the tabernacle, the place that would be God's tent. Everybody else had a tent. All the tents were organized neatly with all their tribes around this place. But now this was God's tent and God's tent was dedicated. And when it was, the Lord showed up. In fact, we call it the Shekinah glory of God when God's presence came. Something similar happened in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 12 and following, when the Bible says Solomon dedicated the temple. It says also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them, of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, and stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. And it came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud. Even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Literally, the Lord took their breath away because it, his presence was so overwhelming, so rich, so full, so beautiful, so powerful. He came to inhabit the praises of his people. Now you move ahead to the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 3 and following, when the Bible asks the question, because now you have the destruction of the first temple, and Haggai is there to mark the rebuilding of the temple. And he says to the people that's gathered, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. 
According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. How is that possible? Well, because the desire of nations would come, and Jesus is the desire of nations. You see, his point to those in his day, Haggai's day, was that you shouldn't look at the temple now in all of its accoutrements and all of its details and all of its accessories and say, well, this house is nothing compared to what it was. The old men wept while the young men shouted, this, isn't, this, isn't, should, this shouldn't be your focus. The focus needs to be the God of the house. And don't you be weak and you be strong because I am with you now and someday I'm going to shake all nations and I'm going to fill this house with a glory that's greater than that than when even Solomon dedicated the temple. What was the emphasis? The emphasis was not on the structure, the architecture. The emphasis was not on the temple furniture. The emphasis was on the God of it all. And that's where our emphasis needs to be today. Whenever we take our emphasis and our eyes off of that, we get into big trouble. In fact, they did in Matthew, Matthew 24, in verse number two, Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things? Verily, he was looking at the temple. He said, verily, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, we can get so focused on the stained glass and the beauty of the structure and the pulpit and the platform furniture and all the details that we take our eyes off Jesus. We who know Christ, we who have received the gospel, we who believe the Bible, we can get our eyes off Jesus. And when we do, we're in big trouble. It's not the, the mortar and the brick. It's, it's not sticks and stones that, that is the focus. The focus ought to be on Jesus. Make it as nice as you can. Put a new coat of paint on if you can. Make it look sharp. Make it look beautiful. Keep it clean. All of that. I'm not begrudging any of that, but I'm simply saying that's not the focus. Someday, and maybe soon, I don't pray for this. I don't wish for it. I hope it never comes to America, but someday uh, we may have to run to the hills. Someday we have to meet, may meet, may have to meet in the forest. Someday we may have to have plan A, B, C, and we may have to say, well, plan C is in work today, and we're all going to have to meet in separate homes, and we're going to have to open the Bible. And do you know what? The focus isn't going to be on bricks and mortar and sticks and stones. It's going to be on Jesus. That's where it should be in the first place. And when the focus is on Jesus and when the focus is right, oh, it's going to be a wonderful thing. Why was Jesus saying this? Someday this is going to be thrown down. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And boy, they got all twisted up about that. In fact, that was part of the reason why they murdered Jesus. Part of the reason why they nailed him to the cross because he dared to lift a tongue against the temple. Well, in John 2, he wasn't even talking about the bricks and mortar and the stones, excuse me, the stones and the temple. The temple was built of stones. He was talking about himself. And his own body. But boy, they just took such offense. And you know, when you're focused on the wrong thing, you can't see straight and you can't think straight. You can't come to the right conclusion about anything when you're focused on the wrong thing, when you have a false premise. Matthew 26 and verse 61, they said about him falsely, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Boy, did they take that out of context. 
In Acts 6 and verse 14, they question Stephen along the same lines. Six chapters into Acts, they're still steaming about this. And they said, uh, tell us about this. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Jesus never said that. In Acts chapter 7, what did Stephen say? Stephen called them to account. He said, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? And they killed Stephen for it. Now watch. We're asking the question today, is Jesus in the house? Is he? Is he in this house? I want you to answer that in your heart. Is he in this house? Is he welcome? Does he have a place uh, of abode? Is he, is he encouraged to come? Is, it, is the door open to him or is it closed? He can't get in the front door. Maybe he'll try the side. Can't get in the side door. Maybe he'll try the back. Can't even get in the back door. Maybe he'll come to the window. Can't get in the window. Maybe he'll just stand like he did on the outside of the church in Revelation and knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What a tragic, tragic picture that Jesus would be on the outside of his church knocking, unable to enter, unable to be inside, not there enthroned and enshrined and held aloft and held high. What a tragic thing. Is Jesus in your house at your at your home? I mean, I know you claim to be a Christian, but does he, have, does he have a welcome place? Is he number one? Is he relegated to a back closet somewhere? Does he have central front and center place? Is Jesus in your house? Is Jesus in your heart? We're asking these questions and they're vital questions. Is Jesus in the house? Well, there's some determining factors. There's some ways you can determine whether he is or whether he isn't. Matthew chapter 2. Keep your finger here in Mark, if you would, and turn back to your left just to Matthew chapter 2. I want you to see what happens, Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus is in the house, I want you to notice what the Bible says. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod, the king, had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Well, well, he's not here in Jerusalem. Where is he? Where is he? He's not here. King. Who's the king? I'm the king around here. Where is he? He's born. Uh, all Jerusalem was troubled. He was troubled. All Jerusalem. He called, called all the high priests and all the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said, where is he? Where is he to be born? And they said unto him, verse 5, he in Bethlehem of Judea, for there, thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently by the way. It wasn't like Herod was blind. But he was. This star was not just a twinkle, twinkle little star. I think it's that one. Wait, is it that one or is that one? Is that a satellite or is that a star? Is that a planet or is it a star? No, 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 no. Some, some historians believe this was a supernova. 
It lit up the whole sky. He's not going to just kind of sort of be there. God doesn't guide that way. He guides clearly and distinctly. And there's no way he could have guided these wise men to Jerusalem. And I personally believe at the time of the nativity, not two years later. And he couldn't have guided them all the way to the nativity and be there with just some, wait, wait, I saw that stuff. What's a cloudy night? Where is it now? What are we going to do? No, 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 no. Why is it that they saw it all the way from the east, but the king couldn't see it from Jerusalem? Bethlehem was not that far away. Well, when you're not saved, you're blinded. Completely blinded. There were some people that were looking to follow Jesus, looking to be guided by the Lord, looking to the scripture, and they were guided by the Lord. He, he that willeth to do his will shall know of the doctrine. And there were some that weren't interested in all in that. They wanted to remain the king on their own throne, and they couldn't see past the nose on their face. He inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them, verse 8, to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Verse 9, when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want you to know that when Jesus is in the house, listen carefully, there is humble worship. Jesus is not going to abide in the same place with your ego. When Jesus is in the house, there is proper worship. It's worship of him and him alone. They didn't come and worship Joseph. Let me just pause and say for anyone interested, they didn't worship Mary they didn't worship Mary. Last year around this time, I was in Pisa, Italy. And when I was in Pisa, Italy, I went for the first time to the church. Now there is the tower. That's the bell tower that's leaning. And uh, I've been there many times before. There is the church. And then next to the church, there's, it'd be like cutting off the rotunda of the Capitol and putting it. It's about that size. That's the baptistry. Well, I wanted to go in the church because I'd never been. And I went into the church, and in the church there next to the Tower of Pisa, they have the remains of a dead saint, supposedly, right there, right there, a shrine you can come and worship. It was a little grotesque. Then they have pictures on the wall. Aesthetically, it's beautiful. Architecturally, it's beautiful. As far as pleasing to the eye, it's beautiful. Marble everywhere, gold everywhere, all that you can imagine. But then I saw a picture that turned my stomach sick. It was a picture of Mary seated on a throne, and Jesus putting a crown on her head. There's a word for that. It's called blasphemy. And when I saw that, I said, I've seen enough. I don't care about seeing anything else. Get me out of this place. Why? Because they were not worshiping Mary. Listen to me. They were worshiping Jesus. When Jesus is in the house, there's humble worship. That means you bow before him and trust him as your savior. When Jesus is in the house, there's humble worship. That means your agenda is last and his agenda is first. When Jesus is in the house, there's humble worship. That means you humbly listen to see what he wants you to do, not tell him what you want to do. When Jesus is in the house, there's humble worship. They were there giving him gifts. Kings were giving him gifts. Could have been three. We think of that because the three gifts, it could have been more than three. 
could have been several. It was an entourage coming from near and far in the east and they were coming to see the one that the star had guided him, them to. They were coming according to the prophecies of Daniel and those prophets of old. They were coming to see the one that had been virgin born and when they came into the house where Jesus was, they bowed down and worshiped. I want you to notice there is humble worship. Turn to Matthew 7 since your Bibles are open to Matthew. Just a few chapters to your right and you're in Matthew chapter 7. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. The Bible says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Listen to me carefully. I want you to notice that when Jesus is in the house, there is safety and stability. When Jesus is in the house, there is safety and stability. Stability. Listen to me carefully. Don't miss this. Don't misunderstand what the Bible is saying. When Jesus is in the house, he's the foundation. And his words are the foundation. When Jesus is in the house, there is safety and stability. Don't, don't miss this. Is Jesus your foundation? Now, I think that's very important. Because the Bible says here in this passage of Scripture that Jesus is likening his words to the foundation. Don't miss this. Watch what the scripture says here in this passage of scripture. It says that he said, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto him as a wise man. Listen carefully. In this passage, Jesus and his words are one. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate the two. Now, poor, poor heretics don't know that. Like, for instance, the heretic Andy Stanley. A couple of years ago, he said we, should, we need to somehow separate, separate Jesus from the 66 ancient documents and worship Jesus. Excuse me, if you don't read the Bible, you don't know Jesus. These two are inseparable. And when everybody, anybody ever talks like that, and sometimes you'll hear preachers do, we need to worship Jesus, not a book. We need to worship Jesus, not the Bible. Well, we're not talking about putting the Bible under glass and bow down, bowing down and worshiping the paper and the leather. Nobody that I know with any sense is talking about that. But we are talking about venerating the words to such a degree that we obey them, that we are awed by them, that we praise them, that we memorize them, that we repeat them, that we spread the essence of them and that's Jesus and whenever a preacher or theologian or quote-unquote scholar starts to say you need to worship Jesus and just ignore the Bible this is what you do you reach in your back pocket and grab your wallet and put it in your front pocket and keep your hand on it that's what you do that person is not to be trusted ever you cannot separate Jesus from the Bible. I do not know anything about Jesus without the Bible. Yes, he has revealed himself through creation. Yes, he's revealed himself through my conscience. Yes, he's revealed himself through his grace. But the Bible says faith 
cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when I build my life upon Jesus as the foundation, I build my life upon his word as the foundation. Now, nobody here this morning, as far as I know, came and checked the foundation of this place. You just have rested in the fact that it was built and structured rightly. I don't know if there's anybody here that was here when this foundation was laid. I don't know if this church was the original building of Canaan Baptist Church or one of the original buildings. I, I don't know. But you can tell that the foundation's good. Why? The roof hasn't fallen in. There are no cracks in the walls. A few years ago, I was preaching in Texas. And while I was preaching there, we were staying in a home. And it was a home of somebody that lived in the church, but they, were, they, they lived uh, there and they went to the church. They're missionaries, so they were gone. And there were cracks in the walls. I said, ooh, honey, the foundation isn't real good. Matter of fact, the house wasn't level. Matter of fact, I could open the door and take a ball at the entrance of the door and it would roll down the hallway without me encouraging it. <laughs> And let me say, I know level and what is not level because I level my house every week. And I can't stand level and I can't stand it being crooked. And so I could tell that this house wasn't level. I said to the pastor, I said, Pastor, I think there's something wrong with the foundation of that house. Oh, he said, there is. He said, it's all over this place. There's a certain kind of clay that shifts. And he said, there's big business fixing people's foundations. Well, I want to say that if your foundation isn't Jesus, you need to get to the business of the word of God and let him fix your foundation because it's faulty and someday it'll blow over when Jesus is in the house listen to me there is humble worship there is safety and stability quickly I want you to turn in your Bible to Matthew 8 next chapter Matthew 8 and verse number 14 in Matthew chapter 8 verse 14 and when Jesus was come into Peter's house he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever now that means Peter had a mother-in-law. Do you know that? And uh, so that means he couldn't have been the first pope. Did you know that? <laughs> if he was the first pope, he was the most miserable man that ever lived. You know why? Because he was never married and yet he still had a mother-in-law. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it says his wife's mother. <laughs> that's the joke. You're supposed to laugh. Anyway, his wife's mother was laid sick of a fever. And Jesus, the Bible says, when he was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid in sick of a fever and he touched her hand. And the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto them. Don't you know this? Hey, when Jesus is in the house, there is healing. There is healing. Some of you came today sick. Not physically sick, but spiritually sick. And sometimes when you're spiritually sick, you don't know how to fix it. Sometimes you go to this person for counsel and that person for counsel and their counsel runs up empty. And, and sometimes you go to the, yourself and you try to fix it yourself and you can't fix it. I believe this, Brother Childs. I have a different perspective on wayward children than I used to. I think sometimes a person gets so far from God and they get so wayward from the Lord that, that if they were to come back, they don't know how. I think the devil blinds them. 
I mean, literally, we know how because we've come back. Those of us that have come back to Jesus, we know how. We know the answer is the Word of God and believe in the Word of God. But sometimes the devil clouds them and stands in the way of them in the Father's house and says, well, if you came back, this is the way you'd be mistreated. And if you came back, this is what would happen. And if you came back, you'd never be any hope anyway. And the scars and all of this go on in their heart and mind. And the devil just clouds their thinking with, I don't even know how to come back. And sometimes when you're sick, you don't know how to get it fixed. Well, I want to tell you, the one with nail prints in his hands can fix it. And it's not that difficult. It's simply turning to him. Jesus is the answer to your trouble and to your difficulty and to your spiritual healing. Now, sometimes he heals us physically just to show that he is the healer of everything. And here the Bible says she was sick. We don't know what she was sick of. We knew she had a fever. We knew that it wasn't, look, didn't look like it was going to go away. It says, and he touched her hand and the fever left her. Go back to Mark 2, where we were in the beginning. Mark chapter 2. Notice verse number 1. It says in Mark chapter 2 and verse number 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway there was gathered together Many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. <laughs> There is healing. When Jesus is in the house, there's healing. And people knew it. They gathered around the door. They packed in the house. They gathered around deep, several deep outside the house. And there was someone that heard that Jesus was in that house. And maybe it was the palsied man that said, if you can get me to Jesus, I can be whole. Maybe it was just his friends. They said, if we can get you to Jesus, you can be made whole. Maybe they all agreed together and consorted together. And, and here's a modern word, collaborated together. And they said, let's, let's get to Jesus. If we can get to Jesus, this whole thing will be solved. And they came and they couldn't get to Jesus. There was a crowd. Jesus was in the house and he was teaching and preaching the word. They couldn't get to him. They couldn't get to him this way. They couldn't even get to the door or the window so that they could shout in through and say, Jesus, we need help. So they went around another way and they got up on the rooftop and they said, we're going to have to come in through the roof. Now that would give us something to think about, wouldn't it? If right in the middle of the service, there was such a commotion and chainsaws started and, and pickaxes started and the people in the center left section all of a sudden had to move aside because drywall was dropping. And now they let somebody down in the middle of it. Well, that would be a, a service to remember, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd probably make some people mad. Well, I was there when we put that drywall up and now they messed it up. It's going to cost thousands to fix. It probably it probably makes somebody say what in the world do these people think they're doing couldn't they have waited till after to talk and get counsel from the pastor I mean really these people are just what's the matter with them it would definitely be a subject of dinner conversation wouldn't it <laughs> you know brother Ingram this is my 50th year on this planet I'm 50 years old now so my new mission in life is if I can't accomplish my original intent I'm just going to give people something to talk about so anyway that's probably what they were doing they were getting him to Jesus we've got to move heaven and earth and the ceiling if need be to get him to Jesus and they did and Jesus to show he has power on heaven and earth didn't heal him first of his physical problem he healed him of something greater than his physical problem. That was his sin problem. He said, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Whew. 
Wow. And more than the dry wall and the thatch being moved, that disturbed the Pharisees. But watch this. Jesus was in the house. When Jesus is in the house, there's humble worship. When Jesus is in the house, there is safety and stability. When Jesus is in the house, there is healing. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. Notice what the Bible says. Mark chapter 2, notice what the scripture says in verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners. This is Matthew's house. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. In Mark's account of this same text, in Mark, Matthew 9, it says, It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, That they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Somehow we, we who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and we who have been saved from our sin, we who have been set free and are now on our way to heaven and not on our way to hell, somehow we somehow get to the point where we think it's, it's better for us not to be around sinners than it is for us to be around sinners. And when somebody starts their cigarette up and someone smells like pot or someone smells like they got liquor on their breath, we want to distance ourselves. L Lord, I'd like to go to heaven. I'd like to leave this earth with a little bit of secondhand smoke on my clothes. Are you thinking with me and listen to me? I want to rub shoulders with sinners so much that, the, that, I, that I smell like I've been with them. You know what they said about Jesus? That he was a wine bibber and a glutton. And I think sometimes, Pastor, in our desire to be holy, and that's not a bad desire, but we so separate ourselves from sinners that we're less like Jesus than we think we are. Jesus ate with the sinners and publicans. Do you know they accused him of being demon-possessed? They accused him of casting out demons in the power of Satan? They accused him of being a wine-bibber and a glutton? They falsely accused him of wanting to tear down the temple and build it in three days? None of those accusations stuck. But one thing they accused him of was true. He was a friend of sinners. Amen. I'm glad he's a friend of sinners today. Amen. That means he's a friend of me. That means he's a friend of you. And if you're here today and you say, oh, Jesus would never have me. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. He'd have you and he wants to save you. He wants to save you right where you're at and right where you're at and right how you are. Not to leave you where you're at, not to leave you how you are, but to make you into his image. When Jesus is in the house, there is, watch this, hope and mercy. Hope and mercy. I'm glad that Jesus came in the house. Turn to one final passage, Acts 8, and we're through. Acts chapter 8, please. Acts chapter 8 in the Word of God. Notice what the Bible says in Acts 8. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 4, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. You know what that means? That when Jesus is in the house, 
there is great joy. <laughs> now, I don't know about that when I look at some Christians. Some Christians look like they were born on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> they look like they've been sucking on lemons or persimmons all day long. They look like they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. And watch this. I don't mean to, to undermine or, be, or, or in any way disrespect someone that's carrying a burden. All of us have burdens. But watch. If you have Jesus, you have someone that can carry your burden. And the sooner you realize that and roll it over on his shoulders, the better off you will be and everybody else will be around you. Hey, God is not dead. He's not sick. God is still king and he hasn't abdicated his throne to you to figure out all the solutions to all the problems in the world. Roll your problem over on him. Do you know when you get saved, you can roll your sin burden over on him and then you can roll every other burden over on him. And you know what happens? Oh, that feels so much better. You know what happens? All of a sudden, you say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're in the house. All of a sudden, it turns your frown or your scowl or your furrowed brow to joy. You know why? Because Jesus is in the house. Is Jesus in the house? If Jesus is in this house, there's humble worship. If Jesus is in this house, there is healing. If Jesus is in this house, there is stability and safety. If Jesus is in this house, there is, uh, th there is a great joy. If Jesus is in this house, there is hope and mercy. Is Jesus in the house? I'm asking the question, and I want you to answer that this morning. Uh, it might be good for us to say to the Christian, is he on the inside or the outside of your house? Revelation 3, again, he's on the outside knocking outside the doors of a church because he's not inside. Is he in your house? It might be better for me to ask this question. Is he in your heart? If he's not in your heart, he can't be in your house. John 1, 11 and 12, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name is he in your heart this morning. Has there been a point when you've received him? I'm, I'm not asking if there's been a point when you've asked him to solve your problem, to help you pass the final. To help you figure out the tax problem you have. To help you get out of jail. To help you uh, just to put away all the mess that you've caused. No, 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 no. I'm asking, have you asked Jesus into your heart to solve your greatest problem that you've ever known? And that's your sin problem. If you haven't, in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity for anyone that hasn't to be saved. And to do that. And I want to encourage you to, in that moment, make the choice to accept Jesus as your Savior. You say, how do I do that? In a simple decision of repentance and faith, I repent. That is, I change my mind and I put my faith. That is, I put my dependence in and on the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment I did that, He saved me, came in my heart. And He's in my heart and in my home. And I can't tell you with any more, more emphasis that it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. That Jesus is in my heart and Jesus is in my home. And He'll come into your heart and your home today if you'll let Him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm so thankful for your goodness and your attention to the Word of God this morning. I wonder if you're here and you're saying, Preacher, I know that I'm saved. I'm sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. There's no doubt. In a moment, I'm going to ask my wife to begin playing a few verses of only trust Him. I want to encourage you just to be honest with the Lord right now. I wonder if you say, Preacher, I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven, but honestly, in some way or another, I've allowed Jesus to take back seat or maybe be out in the cold and oh I want to open the door to him and not let him stay out in the cold knocking I want to do my part to make him have a place in my home and a place in my life 
once again. If that's you as a Christian, you said, Preacher, somehow my heart's grown cold and it's because Jesus has been put outside in the cold. Would you pray for me? I want Jesus back in the center of my life and my heart and my home. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? God bless you. Good. Good. Amen. Anyone else? Just slip up your hand. Put it right back down. God bless you. Yes. Is there another? Question number two, how many of you would say, Brother Smith, there are some things that I don't know, but there's one thing I'm sure of. If I died today, I know that I'd go to heaven. If I died 15 years from now, I know that I'd go to heaven because I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. Now, if you don't know that, don't, don't raise your hand. But if you do, as a testimony to the Lord Jesus, would you just lift your hand up high, preacher? I know that I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven when I die. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Is there anyone here this morning I couldn't see everyone, but I wonder if there's someone here that would say, Brother Dwight, I don't know that. I wish I knew that. I want to know that. Would you pray for me? I don't know that I've accepted Jesus personally as my own Savior and put my faith in Him and received Him into my heart. Would you pray for me? I'd like to get that settled. Yes, I will. If that's you, would you just quietly lift your hand? Is there anybody here like that, young or old, man or woman? Preacher, would you pray for me? I need to make that choice, that decision to accept Jesus into my heart. All right, let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The pianist is softly playing. The altar is open. If you need to make a decision for the Lord, if you need to open your life to Him, your home to Him once again, would you come to this altar and, and tell Him that? Would you come?